accustomed to normally stand during the reading of the scriptures, but I'm going to ask that you remain seated this morning as we turn in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 through 18. We have been going through a study, uh, particularly on this particular section of Ephesians, about spiritual battles. If you've become a Christian very long, you're very much aware that coming into Christ and beginning to walk with Christ, you find that there are great barriers to, to a, a peaceful coexistence with Jesus Christ. Now, many of you have seen the sticker on the back of people's cars. They put coexist, and they have all the emblems of the religions of the world on there, as if that men and women by their sheer will could coexist, right? Uh, how's that working for the world? Is that doing well? Um, it's not by the will of any man or any nation that men and women are able to peacefully live with each other. It is only possible through Jesus Christ. And the book of Ephesians was written to explain why God chose to make the church to create you as his people, that you might model for the world how to live in the oneness of Jesus Christ and in unity. And so for those of you who are joining us for the first time, either online or in person, you, you go back to the first three chapters of Ephesians and you find very interestingly that Ephesians is really the first three chapters dedicated to teaching you about what Jesus has done for you in the cross and through his resurrection. Then the rest of the chapters, four through six, really begin to explain about how we apply the gospel, how we live it out, how we honor God by living in faith in Jesus Christ. And it deals with how we deal with our marriages, how we raise our children, how we do our work. Here in the last part of chapter six, it deals with the, really out, the reality that because you now belong to Christ, if indeed you do, you have an enemy. You actually have three. Three enemies that want to rob you of the peace of being united in Christ. The first is your flesh. The old nature, the sinful nature that God delivered you from. You were once under its domination and so you were in sin and lived in sin without any love for God or desire to be righteous or be holy before him. You were literally separated from God because of it. The, the second enemy of your life is not only your flesh, but it's the devil. And though the devil gets too much billing in, in the world today, we give him way too much power, his power is deception and lies. And so what he desires more than anything else is to come into your life and make you question God's word that God has given to you. Why, the very first words that we have in Scripture attributed to the to the Satan, the Satan, is, did God really say that? I, I hear that all the time. Well, well, did God really mean for this or that? And our culture is, is awash with people who no longer have the anchors or the morals of what's, what we once called Christian morality. Why is that? Because they say, we, we don't believe God said those things anymore. And then the third enemy is the world. Not the earth as we understand it, but the system that humanity lives by in the days that we live. When we see the injustices of the world, when we see the problems of racism that have, that have been throughout the history of humanity, not just in our own country, but throughout the world. 
when we see the sexism and other things that are so blatantly obvious. I mean, let's face it, a governor of New York had to resign because of what? That's an enemy. And so you can see that as a culture, we are awash with, with people living out all kinds of, of desires that, that God has basically said, that's not how I, I created you. That's not what you were made for. And so the world wants to squeeze us into its mold. Everything you turn on the TV, everything you, you read, everything you hear, now wants to take what once was abnormal as far as God's word and say, this is normal. And those who believe God's word, they want to call you abnormal. Isn't that interesting? It's a squeezing of the church going on. In fact, we need to pray for the Methodist church because they are going through the schism that we experienced 10 years ago in this church. Where there are people wanting the church to accommodate the world. And in doing so, the gospel and the purity of Christ and his teaching is being pushed out. It's a very dangerous time for us, isn't it? For we who want to follow Christ, it's a very dangerous time. Well, what's happening? Well, Paul writes about it in the sixth chapter of Ephesians, beginning with verse 10. Uh, let me invite you. Would you stand with me as we hear God's word this morning? Finally, as the final admonition that Paul gives... To the Ephesians, finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For your struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities and against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist and with the breastplate of righteousness in place and with the, your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert. Jesse, I need you to slide over. Thank you. Be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. This is the word of God. You may be seated. When you and I begin to wrestle with the, the armor of God, these are things that God has given us so that we might stand in the days that we live and we might faithfully live out the gospel. And so if you're, you're someone who comes this morning and you're looking for guidance for your life, if you're looking for a way to live that, that really faces the counterculture movement we're seeing in our days, then, then you need to look no further than Ephesians chapter, chapter 6, verse 10 through 14, or actually 10 through 18. 
when you think about this armor of God, we've gone through this series understanding that you and I have been in a real spiritual battle ever since we received Jesus Christ. That the enemies of our lives, the enemies of our faith want us to doubt God and to distrust everything we know the scriptures have taught us concerning who God is and what he calls us to be and to do. And so in light of that, we come to the final section which deals with the, 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 the final two armaments that he gives us. It's the helmet of salvation and the word of God. The helmet of salvation and the word of God. And so as we look at this passage and we begin to dig into specifically this, this verse in verse 17, we're beginning to say, well, what in the world is the helmet of salvation? And so we're not left without a complete darkness with this as we, as we grasp with this. When you look up in the Bible, a helmet of salvation. In the Old Testament, you would see that God was crowned with a helmet of salvation. In other words, he was the victor. He was the one who had the victory of supplying salvation. But that doesn't fit the context of what Paul is talking here. And so as we look in the other places in the scripture, we actually find in the, uh, in the letter of 1 Thessalonians clarity as to what Paul is really having on his mind when he talks about this helmet of salvation. In 1 Thessalonians, he says that this helmet of salvation is our hope. It's the hope of our salvation. You say, well, what does that mean? Well, if you go and look at that verse, and you don't have to look it up now. You can, you can look it up later. But in 1 Thessalonians 5, 8... Uh, Paul writes, he says, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting our faith and our love as a breastplate and hope of salvation as a helmet. Now, why does he use that imagery? Well, in those days, and we think he's talking about a Roman centurion, the Roman centurion would have a helmet that he would wear into battle, and it was made of a thick armament of metal. And underneath there was a felt that would cushion his head, much like, I guess, a football helmet. Some of you uh, have already started bragging to me about the f college football teams that you cheer for this past Saturday. And, and I had a couple of people walk up and say, did you see that game? And I have to shyly say, no. And then they go on to tell me how their college beat them tar out of the tar heels or something like that. Um, <laughs> The helmet of salvation is similar to that kind of helmet, but it was much more rugged. It was much more dependable because the centurion, as he would go into battle, would need something that would be able to deflect spears or even swords or heavy hammers that would be swung at him. And so that helmet was vital for his protection. And so when, Jesus, when, when Paul is writing about the hope of our salvation, he's talking about this mindset that we have. Well, where, where have we heard that before? Well, if you go back into the letter of Ephesians, Paul says that we're to put off the old self, the old sinful nature. We're to renew our mind, have our mind renewed by the word of God, to have our thoughts properly aligned with God's will, and then we're to put on the new nature. That is, we're to live in the spirit of Christ. And so when he talks about this hope of salvation, he's really not talking about something y'all are going to wear around this afternoon. Uh, uh, somebody said, I don't need a helmet, that I've got a perfect helmet head now. Uh, but more than anything else, it's a way of thinking about your life and about your salvation. That's what Paul's talking about. Well, how do you think about your salvation? Well, if you're a Christian, true hope has its salvation as its object. Now, what do I mean by that? 
Well, as Christians, we have come to faith in Christ, that in Jesus Christ, through the repentance of our sins and believing that he is the way in which we can be made right with God, that his work on the cross for us paid for penalty for all of our sins. And not only that, that we are now declared righteous by God because we have put our faith in the cross, that what Christ did on that cross was for you and it cleansed you and purified you and separated you as God's people. And so when you and I think of the hope of salvation, it is, the, it is that, that hope of every true Christian that we hope that we are found in Christ because of the merits of trusting in him. And as to respect for our salvation, that it was purchased not by us. It was purchased by Christ. That our salvation was something he accomplished for us. That we did not in any way contribute, do anything, add to anything, in any way contribute to our salvation. It was purely Christ's work of the cross. That is our hope of salvation. When you think back to Martin Luther when he wrote the 95 Theses and nailed them on the door of the Wittenberg Chapel, why did he do that? He said, the church is not teaching the hope of our salvation. The church is teaching that we can come to salvation through our works, that we can be good enough to get to heaven after we believe on Christ. And that's not the gospel, that we are saved strictly, purely because of Christ's work which he has now bestowed upon you. This is why Paul says, put on the new clothes. What new clothes? The clothes that Christ has now clothed you in. It's a, it's a righteousness that now makes you acceptable to God. You can go to God any moment, at any time of any day, and pray to God and know that he hears your prayers. Nothing keeps your prayers from God. Nothing. Why? Because you have a high priest named Jesus who has made a way for you to have this relationship with God. Isn't that beautiful? That's the hope of salvation. You say, well, what's the problem? Why would Paul need to say, put on the helmet, get ready for battle? Because the enemy wants to rob that security from your heart. The enemy wants to deprive you of the peace that comes from believing the gospel. Let me explain it this way. There are three things that the Bible clearly teaches us through this that we have to understand. That if the object of our, our salvation is Jesus Christ, then maybe there possibly are other places where people put their trust than Jesus Christ, even as Christians. You see, there are many who hope to have eternal life. What do I mean by that? Well, if you go to them and ask them, do you think you're going to heaven or do you have a relationship with God? They would say something along the line, well, I hope so. I, I've, I've heard people say that to me. Are you, do you know that if you die today, you'll go to heaven? Well, I hope so. And I begin to ask the second question, well, how do you hope that? Well, that's, that's an interesting phrase. How do you hope that? Well, they, they presume they have this hope, but it's off of an ignorance. It's not based on what Christ did on the cross. They're thinking that they are somehow going to earn God's favor presumptuously. It's kind of like the old balancing technique. Have you ever seen that? Where people say, well, I hope I'm going because I'm really trying to go to church and listen to some guy tell me about what Jesus said. 
But, you know, during the rest of the week, I, I may make up some mistakes, but I, I make it up on Sunday. You, you hear that kind of thought? Yeah? That's a presumptuous kind of hope. You're, you're hoping that you're going to be right with God based upon something you do to offset something you, you should do or maybe did do. There's a second kind of hope that can be in the Christian life. And, and by the way, that hope that, well, I hope I'm going to heaven, is, is kind of built on that idea that somehow we know that there are things that maybe we're not right with God about, but we're not, we're not really taking hold of the gospel and dealing with God, honestly. The second kind of hope that people can have is a hope that really is a hope based on a, a self-righteous hope. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, they hope they're going to heaven, but they're completely lost about the fact they even need heaven. They're not even mindful of how lost they are, how sinful they are, how fallen they are. Uh, they're ignorant of how much God needs to deliver them from the evil that is in their heart and in the world, and they're not even sure of how God would do that. It's kind of this way, and this is the best way I can say it. If, if you were going to travel from here to Statesville, and you were going to tell me, well, I'm, I'm, I'm going to end up in Statesville this afternoon, um, you could say, well, that's wonderful, and assume that that person is going to end up in the town of Statesville by sometime around 5 o'clock this afternoon. But when you go to the more delicate question, how are you going to get to Statesville? There are a number of choices people might choose. Or you might say, well, I'll, I'll, I'll thumb a ride. I'll hitchhike on the interstate. Uh, I, I'll, uh, I'll walk there. Some of you might say, well, I'm going to drive there. You see, in every one of those circumstances, what you're thinking is that you are going to make the effort to get to Statesville, and by your will and by your power and by your ability, you are going to arrive in the neighboring town. The gospel says, forget it. You'll never get to heaven that way. Your hope is not in Jesus Christ. It's in yourself. It's a self-righteous hope. Do you hear this? And so the real question you have is, are you walking in the hope of the salvation that is the helmet of salvation that God wants you to have and wear? Or are you being tempted by the flesh, the devil of the world, to put your hope in something beside Jesus? You see, that's the battle of the Christian life. The, th the third place that a hope can be in someone's life really is a hope that, that must be coupled with, and excuse me for not advancing this, well, maybe I shouldn't, not yet. Um, the hope that, that is just the most, well, honestly, it's the most damning to the church is the hope that a person has when they think to themselves that they don't have to be holy or strive for holiness in their life. You know, the Bible says that there is no salvation for those who live in sin. When you read the first letter of John, he says you cannot be in sin and continue to be in Christ. In other words, you cannot be dominated by a lifestyle where you basically reject God and say, I want no part of Christ in my life. And then at the same time, show up at church on Sunday and say, praise the name of Jesus. And so this... this overwhelmingly destructive hope is that we somehow compartmentalize our, our lives. That we section ourselves off in such a way that we, we show this part 
of our lives to God, but then we keep other parts private and secret and we keep it to ourselves. And so we, we don't think of our salvation as a, a means to becoming more like Christ. We think Christ is the means by which we can simply get excused for sinning. And yet the hope of salvation teaches us that we are to deny ungodly lusts. We're to deny them. You don't hear that today, do you? You hear, you hear people, even from pulpits, encouraging people to embrace ungodly lusts. Why, why is this happening? Because of the deception of the enemy. I, I, I'm amazed at how many Christians falling into this category of believing that somehow they can live lifestyles that are so abhorrently displeasing to God, not because I judge it to be so, but because God says it in his word. And then they begin to rationalize and justify and say, well, it's... it's, it's Let me give an example. I talked to a man years ago who drove right up to this church, not a member. And he said, I want you to marry us. And he had this pretty little woman in the front seat. She really was. She was very pretty. And he could just tell he was smitten with her. And I said, well, I don't know who you are. Tell me more about who you are. And he said, well, I live in the neighboring town. And I won't mention the town. And he said, I've, I've met this girl, and I've just fallen in love, and I want to marry her. And I said, well, there's some obvious questions I need to ask you, and I don't want to insult you, but are, are you already married? Well, I'm, I'm getting a divorce. And I said, well, do you have children? Three. But I'm closer to them now than I ever have been. Do you hear it? Now you say, how could a person get to that place? It's because they have been deceived. And they have allowed themselves to think that I can follow Jesus, but I can still hold on to a sinful habit, a sinful desire that God has said, this is not from me. And they are hypocrites. I better be careful. I might be preaching to myself at this point. Hypocrisy is very elusive. And all of us can be in the danger of it, can't we? Paul's concerned for you because he wants you to put on the helmet of salvation. He wants you to rest completely in that work of Christ in such manner that you enjoy a relationship with God on a daily basis where you are dependent upon the Lord Jesus Christ for everything. Everything. You're not dependent on this church. You're not dependent on this pastor. You're not dependent on these elders. You are dependent upon a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. This is our hope of salvation. I have no ability to deliver myself from the wiles of my evil heart. And by the way, if you knew what they were, you wouldn't want me to be your pastor. It's okay. If I knew what you struggle with, I wouldn't want to be your pastor either. 
But the truth of the gospel is that God did not save us because we became good enough. He saved us because he chose us from the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. And when you heard the gospel, you said, that is true. I am a sinner. I will never be able to save or alter or change my heart. I need the blood of Christ to cleanse me. And you came and pled to God and said, God, forgive me. And at that moment, he did. Cleansed. I love the first chapter of Colossians where Paul goes through this great introduction and prayer for these Colossian Christians. And he says, he has now qualified you to be blameless. You know what that means? That means the moment you die and you stand before Christ in that great judgment day. You're going to be thinking, I did this, I did that, I did this, I did that. And all God will be saying is, come here, blameless. Come join me, blameless. And I'm not worthy of that. But that's what God has done for you. And the devil does not want you to believe it. The world does not want you to follow it. And your flesh has a hard time letting you receive it and believe it. Don't you? Don't you really have a difficult time believing it? This is the gospel. This is the power of God given under heaven whereby all men and women must be saved. How great is our God. Glorious to behold. You say, Robert, well, that's a great sermon. Is it over yet? No, no, hold on. Wait a minute. There's a, there's a hope we have that God is the author, that this, this gospel did not come from us. It came from God. It's not thought up by men who sit in a dick in a, in a cigar-smoked room and said, how can we start a religion that somehow brings hope to people? This is not a, a message of the Mormon church or the Jehovah's Witnesses that tells you you have to be good, but you need to be better than you are. This is not a message of the Muslim world that says you can only be assured of heaven if you do enough good. And when you ask how much is that, they say only when it's enough, but they never give you a measurement. This is not the religion of the Judaizers who say you must obey God's law perfectly and if you don't, you're lost this is the gospel of Jesus Christ that says, Come unto me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will forgive you. I will cleanse you. I will make you a new people. This is the Jesus who was God in the flesh. Not just a man. God incarnate. And not only that, is it our hope that God is the author. A true hope is that holiness is what God expects of his people. We are endeavoring, endeavoring to live godly lives. And let me tell you, with the advent of the cell phone and the computer and all the media today, men, you are in the devil's You are in his target. Because he wants you to be distracted by those passions you have in such measure that you will be carried away. 
You say, Robert, how do you know that? Because I'm a man. I know what we face every day. My wife came to me with her phone one day and she said, I got this email from somebody. And I said, what is it? She said, I don't know. And we opened it up and we were like, ooh. We both went, ooh. And I looked at her and I said, what have you been looking at lately? And she said, that's not me. I said, well, good. I'm glad to hear that. You see, it only takes a crack. Remember last week we talked about how the devil works? Remember? It's kind of like how they chisel rock from the quarry. They just put a little hole in the quarry and they put just a little splinter of a piece of metal and they hammer that metal until this huge granite slab bigger than this building breaks off and falls over. That's how the devil works. Let me tell you, if you've got a secret sin right now, it will find you out. It will. Your only hope is to come to Christ. Your only hope. Well then, if that's the case, then what hope do we have? Well, we have the hope of God's word. Here's where the helmet's use is very important. it's, It's a true hope in the sense that we hope in Christ. It prepares us for conflict. When the enemies of our lives come against us, we have have a a weapon to protect us from the lies that the world or the devil uh, or our flesh tell us. And so in many ways, you and I, as we we go through this conflict, the, the hope of our salvation is in Christ alone, saves us from those moments in the midst of our battles that we don't feel that we're worthy, that we're not ready because we're not good enough. And God says, no, I've made you good. I've made you blameless. The second second thing about this helmet of salvation is that it it is a, a way of sustaining us in this conflict that we have. How so? There are many occasions where you and I can have doubts and fears about our walk with Christ. There are many trials that come into our lives each day, everything that tries to trip us up. I'll, I'll never forget when I was in Boy Scouts, we were trying to play a trick on some other Boy Scouts. So we, we put out this, this fishing line between two trees along the path. We tied one, one tree and one to the other, and we waited for these guys to come running down the path. They were, no, they were no match for that fishing line. It was a real tested line. I don't remember how much pounds it had on the, on the strength of it, but when they came running down that path, they hit that and they went head first down the rest of the path. It, it cleaned all the branches off of everything else. And you, that's exactly how the devil wants to deceive you and me, how the world wants to squeeze us into its mold. When we come to those moments of conflict, when we trip over the, the, the snares the devil places, what do we do? We have this sustaining power that I'm not saved because of what I do. I'm saved because of who I believe in. I'm saved because God has accomplished what I could not do for myself. And therefore, because of that, I can have hope that I can spot those traps the devil is setting for me. And even when I don't, that God will not abandon me. I can get back up. I can confess it to God and go on. Have you ever tried a diet? You ever tried that? You know? Don't you hate diets? Yeah. Why why are they so hard? It's because we're always tempted by the things we can't have. Now, if I told you you could have as much candy as you want, go eat candy until you throw up, you would be, well, I'm not interested. 
But the minute I say, I'm sorry, you can't have any chocolate cake, for the next three hours, all you women are going to be thinking about is chocolate cake. <laughs> Why is it that way? Because of the flesh. And it's the gospel that will sustain you. It's the gospel. It's Jesus who abides in your heart that sustains you in those moments of testing. The third is that our, our true hope is that we will be victorious. Isn't that glorious? That we really will have victory. You know, I used to sing that song all the time in church. Oh, victory in Jesus. And I just thought it was an old camp song that, you know, just a catchy tune. What is it talking about? It's talking about this ability to grow in maturity in our faith so that we become aware of these enemies of our faith and we continually find victory by putting our trust in Jesus. Do you hear that? Not by standing on our own two feet and being a strong Christian and saying, oh, everything's right with the world. No, it's putting our trust in Christ. You say, okay, Robert, now the sermon's over. Not quite. Hold on. We have to think about the sword of the Spirit. Remember? The helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit. How do we understand this? Well, we understand it from the two ways in which, God, which Paul describes this for us. And God has given us this revelation. The description first is we are given the Bible as the Word of God. Now, what does that mean, the Word of God? Well, first, it is inspired by God. If you were to read the Quran and you would read the Bible, you would immediately recognize that the Quran does not say, thus saith the Lord. It doesn't say that. The Bible is the only religious book in the world where you find God speaking to his people and speaking in historic, real situations where they know that God has spoken and they have heard him speak. And in such measure, God has sent prophets and men who give God's word to people and they know it to be true because it becomes true. In other words, when the prophet said, if you don't do this, this is going to happen and God's going to allow this to, to take place. And it's exactly what happened. And so you know that the word of God is true. And as the Old Testament reveals to us the character of God, not only his wrath, but his justice and his mercy and his grace, so the New Testament warns us of the same thing. And then it's not only inspired, it's a revelation of God's mind and will to humans. Haven't you ever wondered when you see people going, well, I wonder what God thinks about that, right? Let's take, just for instance, this whole idea of transsexuals. Well, you know, they've been around forever, y'all. Did you know that? They were in Ephesus when Paul wrote this letter. Did you, did you know that? They were actually temple prostitutes that were of that kind of persuasion. And they plied their sexuality as a way of worshiping their God. And so as these Christians came out of this cultic kind of prostitution that was available, they began to say, well, I wonder if God, what, 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 and people would say, well, what does God think about all that? Well, God has already said so in the Bible, what he says. Male and female, I have created you. Not
that I've made you one thing and you feel another. You know the real problem that's happened with our culture today? We base truth upon how we feel. Do you hear me? When I hear someone say, well, I feel like a woman and they're a man, I just lose context when I think about that. How can a man even know what a woman feels like? Because he was created a man. This is the one area in our life where the greatest spiritual battle we face as a church is upon us. Because our children and grandchildren are going to be taught the exact opposite of the Word of God. What will we do? What will you do? Will you be risk would you risk being called a bigot? Would you risk being called a racist? Would you risk being beaten up for the name of Jesus? The Word of God is God's voice to every individual. I, I never really understood that until I came to know Christ. Before I came to know Christ, I, I, I read the Bible, I heard the Bible, I, I listened to the Bible, I understood the Bible somewhat. But when I asked Christ into my life and He came and the Holy Spirit began to work in my heart, I would open the Bible and I, I was just amazed how much I understood compared to how much I didn't understand before. And it, it wasn't because I, I somehow instantaneously got a higher IQ. There was something that happened in my heart that opened the scriptures to me. And that is the power of the scriptures. Not that the ink and paper have power, but they have power from the Holy Spirit to enlighten our hearts to understand what we read. Remember in Acts when Philip was sent by God to approach an Ethiopian who came from Africa to worship God in the Jerusalem temple. He was on his way home and he was reading the book of Isaiah and he was just reading it out loud thinking, what am I reading? And then Philip shows up and he says, what is this I'm reading? And Philip says, I can tell you exactly because it's, the, it's Jesus who we know. And he began to explain to Philip, or Philip began to explain to the Ethiopian and, and that's how we think the church spread to Africa was through those kinds of interchanges. When I became a Christian, I would open the Bible. And I, I was so changed by that. I, I really thought our, our minister, Reverend Wardlaw, Warren Wardlaw, I thought that maybe he came to know Christ too the same weekend I did because I went to his church and I, he was preaching a sermon. And I was like, wow, I understand that. You know, it was just shocking. It's the voice of God. And you can well imagine that those who don't want God in their life, those who do not desire God in their life, well, they don't want to hear that voice. 
Don't be surprised by that. But it's the word of God. Notice also that the sword of the spirit or the sword that we're given is the spirit of God. What do I mean? Well, I've alluded to this already and this will be the end of the sermon. Simply that the scriptures speak to us by the power of the spirit. That when we approach the scriptures, we should look at its context and look at its historical circumstances and under, who, under what conditions was each letter or, or book written. But we know that the content of it speaks about God and his character and how he works and what he judges and how he dispenses grace. And the spirit reveals this in such ways that that power to in. In, in ta- or I should say to ingest or to take in the word to our lives come from the Holy Spirit that now resides in us and he comes exactly in the way Jesus told the disciples that he comes to reprove and correct and to teach us in all things. And finally this sword has a tremendous work in that the scriptures, the scriptures do something miraculous in the person that reads them. Miraculous. Something happens in the heart of a human when they open the Bible. I've talked to an elder in this church who came to Christ because they found a Bible in the Gideons had left in a hotel room. And no one ever told him anything. He just opened the Bible and it suddenly, boom, the lights went on. How do you explain that? It's, it's the sword of the Spirit. It's the power of God. Okay, now with that said, now that you understand the helmet of salvation is that we put our hope only in Jesus Christ, that the sword, the only offensive weapon we have, the only offensive weapon we have, all of the other are defense, that the word of God is to be used to ward off. And you think about where does that occur? Well, remember when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, what happened? The devil came to him and three times tempted him and he said, no, no, God said this. The devil quoted the scripture too. Did you know that? But Jesus would come back with the word of God saying, nope, this is what God meant. Sorry, you're deceiving me. Now, how, are we to, how do we respond to this? Well, it's useful in combat in the sense that it helps us defeat our enemies by giving us clear directions. You're, you're at work and you find that you're person you're working with is very attractive and you like being with them and you know you know I'm just having lunch with them don't be deceived don't play with a game you know this is not true and the word of God says do not be deceived by the things of the flesh the scriptures can be useful in the sense that it's it aids us in that powerful motive to love God. In other words, the more you read the Bible, the more you start loving God, the less you read the Bible, guess what happens? Yeah. And and the scriptures encourage us, don't they? They give us such encouragement. Man, haven't you ever felt like you were just in the pits? You know, I, I was cleaning out the trash can the other day we take out to the to the to the road and if, have y'all ever looked in the bottom of your trash can lately <laughs> holy cow and as I opened that thing I looked in there and I said that's exactly how I'm feeling I feel like I'm at the bottom of the barrel the whole the whole meaning of that came to light in that very moment and and I was so discouraged and then as I was walking back I began singing a song that we sang in church and it was based on the scriptures and then I thought about the scripture I was like oh man if God is for me who can be against me amen See how encouragement that is that word is encouragement that's why we support the Tuesday group that 
has a Bible study here, the Community Bible Study Group. They meet here on Tuesday mornings. Why do we do that? Why do we expend all this effort to let these people from all over the place come and hear God's Word? It's because it's encouragement to Christians wherever they are. By the way, do you know that with all the money we've spent on this technology to reach people beyond the doors of this church, we actually had someone study the Bible in New York City as they watched the community Bible study video from this church. Did you know that? That's not a coincidence. See what God is doing? Tremendous things. And finally, the scriptures afford us instruction. Lord, be a lamp, lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. I'm so confused to do what, what, what am I supposed to, God, the word of God comes, gives me direction. Well, all that to be said then, what's our response? How do you leave here this morning? Say, I'm, the Bible's the word of God. Yeah, ha. If that's all you leave with, you're poorer than when you came. Say, What? How thankful should you be really for the Holy Scriptures? How thankful that God has preserved those 66 books. And by the way, the more archaeology that is done in, the Israel, in, in Israel, the more that is being done, the more is being proven of the history of the Bible is accurate and true. Did you know that? The second question you have to leave with is how earnestly should I seek the influence of the Holy Spirit in reading the Bible. We don't read anymore. Did you notice that? I mean, I take that back. You teenagers, I know you read. You read my text, right? I've got an app. Get this. I've got an app for the ESV Bible where I can open up this app and I can go to any part of the Bible with one touch of a button. And the thing about it is that's just so strange to me is that if I get tired of reading it, I can actually hit a button and it will speak it for me. We have more access to the Bible than we have had in the history of the church. It's not a matter of access, is it? It's really not. It's a matter of the battle that we face where the world and the devil and the flesh don't want you to hear God's word. How will you respond? <coughs> Say, Robert, I don't know if I have enough time. Really? But what joy. <laughs> what incredible joy that comes from communing with God in his word. There are things he has prepared for you that if you could know them now, you would say, oh, Robert, please preach one more hour. No kidding. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we thank you for the word of God. We thank you that it is available and it is able 
to change us in such ways that by the power of God's Spirit at work in us, we are able to enjoy God and love you forever. That's the chief end of humanity. And so for that reason, we humbly pray, God, this morning, make me hunger for your word. Especially pastors, God. Pastors are the worst. We spend all this time preparing messages. And yet pastors are the people who probably spend the least amount of time reading God's word for themselves. Help your church. God, help your church, we pray. In Jesus' name. And the people of God said together. Amen. Amen.